All right, this is the uh, story about the uh, a man who's trying to move on in his career, uh, a long-term company man, a pirate. Uh, this joke, by the way, is a, is a registered in the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. under uh, American Folklore backslash jokes. I believe last time I looked it up, probably a year or two ago, it was like number seven or eight. Gosh, I hope nothing else has entered there because it's a, it's a wonderful story. It's, 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 it's an American story. The famous pirate joke. It was a pirate out the seas for 20 years, but he wanted to start getting home. He was getting a little little homesick. His, uh, his, his young son was getting bigger. He wanted to participate in more activities with the family. And uh, so he went down to Human Resources, talking to the HR guy, and just to see how he can move from being uh, out on the seas into, into corporate headquarters. So he had an interview with the HR guy. Well, sir, we really appreciate you coming on down here today. Uh, uh, we we uh, we admire your service for Pirates Incorporated. Gosh, twenty years, and uh, boy, look at all the uh, look at all the citations here in your HR record and all your perfect write ups. And gosh, you are you are exactly what Pirate Incorporated wants to represent itself to be. And and we certainly understand that it's you know it comes with time in a person's life that they just want to kind of move on from what they've been doing and maybe uh, examine other things. We, gosh, we encourage that here in Pirates Incorporated. Certainly with your knowledge, your frontline knowledge, you are certainly going to bring that information back here to headquarters. And gosh, that's just great overall for Pirate Incorporated. So, so we thank you very much. Uh, I've gone over your battery of tests. Gosh, you've sailed right through these things. Sailed, right? Pirate Incorporated. So you sailed right through these things. So we'd like to have a little humor here. Uh, you know, you, you, can't, you have to have a little fun at work. So so uh, we, you, you went right through your test. Your battery test is just wonderful. We're just looking to see where perhaps we can place you uh, so that the best fit for you, you're happy, we're happy, Pirate Incorporated is happy. So again, I've gone through your testing. I just need to ask you a couple of questions, sir, so that we can make sure that, uh, that the company is addressing all of your needs. And so therefore, what's again, good for you is good for Pirate Incorporated. So, sir, I have to ask you a couple questions. It's just you and I in this room. Uh, uh, I'm going to ask you some questions. Uh, nothing leaves this room. So, first of all, uh, to make sure that we have everything in place for you, can you tell me about the mid-peg leg? He goes, yeah, that's really fascinating, sir. I- I've actually never seen one. Can you uh, can you tell me more about the, uh, the peg leg? He goes, oh, let me tell you, matey. We was out there on the boat. I was rocking and swinging. Oh, it was full battle. But uh, yeah, Cannonball, unfortunately, <clears throat> came ripping through the starboard side of the ship. Well, let me tell you. All of a sudden, I needed a peg leg. And my mateys, they helped me whittle this thing. We used fine mahogany from a mast we had stored in below the ship. And so it's an honor to be wearing the mast of a ship as I as I But I'll tell you, over time, I, I've not even, even thought about it. I, 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 I enjoy when we go to port and we go out dancing. Saturday night fever, staying alive. <laughs> oh, my bucky. Oh, we have such a good time. But no, I have no problems. I uh, When work needs to be done and things have to be pushed and things have to be moved around, I... I, I, I'm just another, just another matey on the ship, my man. Just another, just another matey. Gosh, sir, uh, unbelievable. You are inspiring. You, you are, you, <laughs> I, I, you are a legend, sir. Um, just you know, just you know, really two more questions. We just want to make sure everything's cool uh, here at uh, headquarters. Can you tell me about? It? He goes, yeah, you're asking about me, hook. He goes, yeah, wow. You know, I've seen pictures of those, but uh, you know, I've never actually seen one in person. What can you tell me about? He goes, well, first of all, let me tell you something, matey. We're all on the safety committee together, so you notice I have a little cap on the hook here, so that there's no no problems with it. But I'll tell you something. Uh, tell you a little story about. It. Uh, we was out on the boat and it was rocking and swaying. It was cannon fire right and left and well all of a sudden uh, i needed i needed a hook so my mateys we made this hook out of the steel from the bulkhead of the boat 
I'm a, I'm a, I'm a proud wearer, part of the ship out there in the seas for 20 years. I'm a mini. Let me tell you something. I don't even think about it anymore. When work has to be done, I push boxes. I, I store things on shelves. When I have to do computer skills, I, I write mouse click like the best of them, my matey. <laughs> Oh, yes. I have no... I'm just I'm just a uh, pirate incorporated man. He goes, HR guy. Oh, my gosh, sir. You are amazing. Like, you know, I, I had no idea. But, you know, hey, just one more thing. I just want to make sure everything's cool with you. It's cool with you. It's cool with us. Hey, can you tell me about that? He goes, me patch. He goes, yeah. Wow. What's with the patch? He goes, well, matey, it was me first day with the hook. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and that guy telling that joke in the cold open was my dad. Why did he tell that joke? Because a couple of weeks ago, it was the Feast of St. Ignatius, and I remembered that St. Ignatius was uh, had his leg broken by a cannonball, which precipitated his conversion, and when I remembered that, I started thinking about how my dad tells this funny joke about cannonballs, and so I asked him to tell the joke, and I recorded it, and there you have it. Anyway... I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Ed, it is nice to see you on this uh, on this August day. It's nice to see you too, J.D. Yeah, 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 good. I, I want to, um, you know what I want to talk about, Ed? I almost never know what you want to talk about, J.D. It's part of I, what makes this entire thing an adventure for me. <laughs> I, uh, I, I have been... I, whatever you're, it's almost an impossible thing to talk about because however you talk about it, people will think that you're talking about politics and we can talk about the politics of it. But before that, I, I, I just want to sort of talk about the personal experience of it. Our nation seems to be in a, in a, in a resurgence, a, a, a pandemic resurgence, a COVID resurgence. And, uh, that has obviously been going on for quite some time now, but I, um, I guess I naively allowed myself to believe that at the time when vaccines started becoming available and people started becoming vaccinated with more regularity, that we were sort of on the tail end of the predominance of the pandemic as a social phenomenon. And maybe we are. Maybe we maybe we have passed by the predominance of the pandemic as a social phenomenon and entered into a phase in which the, the pandemic is sort of an enduring backdrop against all things and against many things and sort of settling in as one of the many issues that kind of just hums along in American public life about which people have opinions of agreement or disagreement and discuss or don't discuss in polite company according to their judgments. But I am just, I mean, just on a personal level, I just thought, I guess that we were done with this and we are not, as a social phenomenon, and we are just not done with this. And I'm I mean, what I want to talk about is that I'm tired of talking about it, I guess. But 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 the, I think there's a reason to do that because here we are, uh, you know, with sort of ongoing public conversation and ongoing public disagreement, which is now intensifying. And of course, it's intensifying because school's going to start soon, and you know, because the, because the thing is on the rise and because of vaccines. And but here we are with like ongoing public conversation, public disagreement, dissent, virtue signaling anti-virtue signaling, anti-anti-virtue signaling, all about this thing. And it's just becoming like an ordinary staple of American public life. And I, I'm just tired of it, man. Ah, uh, you sweet summer child for thinking that we were ever going to get through this. I, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic uh, to your disappointment, but I can't really empathize because I never thought this was going away. Um, yeah, th this, I, I mean, th quite apart from the fact that quite literally, 
the pandemic hasn't gone away. People are still right. getting sick. People are still dying. There's that. Um, but even if we get to a point where this is, uh, as a medical event, functionally fading and goes from pandemic to epidemic to outbreak or, you know, whatever the sort of reverse traffic light system is for that. Mm -hmm. uh, this isn't going anywhere for a long time. Yeah. And I hate to say I told you so, but I wrote like a year and a half ago. This this is going to be the coronavirus is going to be with us in spirit um, in ways that shape our daily lives uh, in an enduring way, in much the same way that the attacks on September 11th. That's what I was going to say. If you think that September 11th was an event and the fallout from that event was um, a couple of decades of war, which, by the way, is still in the news today, <laughs> still in the news today and in, in really terrible and tragic ways in various ways, but, you know, a couple of decades of war, enduring changes to various kinds of American experience, you know, with the, with the sort of security apparatus that evolved thereafter, um, you know, uh, enduring new, new kinds of, um, not new, but um, for a period, sort of newly intense forms of social prejudice and subsequent to that sort of latent social prejudice. I mean, just, yeah, there, there are many, many ways that September 11th reshaped or intensified various aspects of American public life in a way that is enduring today. And uh, you you did say that that was what we were going to see with this pandemic. And I think I assented to that intellectually and I could see it, but I was loath to sort of believe it. And yet, you know, if you go to an airport today, as you and I were at an airport together a little while ago, and I was at an airport last week. And if you go to an airport today, you can see the way, I mean, if an airport is a good barometer, you can see the way in which... Um, Right alongside all of the TSA apparatus that that is derived from September 11th is a, is a health security a health security apparatus that has derived, and I'm not commenting on its necessity or, or non necessity, um, and I want to talk about why I'm not commenting on that. But um, but you can see the way that this apparatus is beginning to emerge in a way that does not seem as if it is a, a transitory thing, but may well become just an ordinary part of our public life. And well, it has to become an ordinary part of our public life, JD, because you can't. There's two things. First of all, you can never when when um, when an apparatus is created to prevent the worst from happening, you can never reach a point where anyone can say, "Well, the it worst won't. is not going to happen, so yeah, we don't need this right. anymore." It's I mean, yeah. a, a, mm -hmm. a, a, an entire architecture formed around a sort of preventative, defensive posture can never be credibly dismissed or dismantled because you can never rule out the thing that it's was brought in there to defend against. All you can do is argue that, um, you know, sort of acute concern about it has diminished. And then, then you're just being told that you're being lax. And again, I'm not expressing a for or against opinion on this. I, I'm just saying that's that's how the argument goes. And well, and, and especially the thing is ahead. also it it gathers it, it becomes self-sustaining. Why? Why would you never get rid of the TSA now? Well, because it's a government spending center. It's an it employs people. It's it's infrastructure, man. You know, it's like you can't you you can't create a whole sort of cottage industry around an acute moment and then expect it to just sort of go away. Like, and I don't think most people would say, especially because I don't think most people would say that even if even if people are critics of various aspects of the of the TSA, and I think I've probably made my own criticisms of the TSA on this show, even. But I, I don't think that most sort of most people in the mainstream would say that the TSA has no functionality of importance, even if, um, even if they're critical of it. And that is, I think, the reason for its 
perdurance is because no one wants to say, I think, as you say, look, this isn't having any preventative value at all. Um, I, I don't think you can say that. I think it's sort of it, it's very difficult to, to sort of demonstrate that. And then no one wants to say it, um, e- even if you could. But but again, I don't think you can say it. I think you've sort of um, internally psych- accepted the psychology of this has some value and this is important. And even if it's only a deterrent value, but, you know, the, 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 it may well be far more than that. And we just don't know. You, you internalize this has some value. And then, of course, you know, if you accept that, then it's very difficult to. And, and I'm not saying that the, the, that with, in terms of sort of health security, if you will, that's not important because what this pandemic has sort of awakened for a lot of people is the awareness of the possibility of, of other, you know, it, it continued sort of very serious health security risks. I don't know if you saw that Netflix uh, documentary pandemic, which came out before the pandemic, but essentially sort of outlined the risk of an, a, a pandemic which would emerge from a flu variety probably, uh, you know, would, would sort of emerge because of globalization would emerge from a flu variety and, and the way in which the various ways in which we were unprepared for it and the, the increasingly high probability of a global pandemic which could have, you know, a significantly high fatality rate from a, from a flu v- uh, variety for which we're not prepared. Um, it was a documentary sort of outlining that possibility before COVID-19, but COVID-19 is not that. I mean, the, that risk of flu variety in those ways has not been sort of eradicated or diminished because we had this other pandemic. In fact, it, it perdures. And so, you know, there is, I think, a greater awareness of the fact that there is, you know, that our health, um, that globalization changes sort of the dynamics of, of our health and that we don't have sort of immune system. It's not sufficient to have immune systems that are um, prepared for the local varieties of various things because of the speed at which the world travels. Um, and so there is a greater awareness of those things. So I, again, I don't want to say that there's no, um, th- that we shouldn't be aware of those things, but there's no value of those things. But man, um, I'm just like, you can see the way that this is becoming a permanent thing. And um, you can see parts of it that seem uh, you can see parts of it that don't make sense, that are inconsistent with each other, that you know that, that are exasperating and and seem not to make sense relative to other parts. And I'm just like I, I, I brought it up because I'm feeling tired of talking about it. Um, and uh, and you can see the way in which it's just going to become an ordinary part of our public, uh, the experience of our public life. Yeah, it's it's yeah. just not going anywhere. Um, I th- there are easy ways that you can circumvent it, which is don't travel, right? right. Don't eat out. Don't have right. friends. Don't see people. Right. Right. Stay home, yeah. But because um, if, if you do see people, then you have to. Then there's a negotiation, and 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 I live in in Colorado, and I I I thought that there was a kind of negotiation here when you see people, but then I went uh, to see you on the East Coast and do some other things on the East Coast, and I realized, oh wow, it's it's even more pronounced in in uh, on the East Coast and probably in California as well um, than it is kind of in the in the West and probably almost certainly in the Midwest. And there are trade-offs to that because obviously there are places where people are getting sick, but you can see the way this is being internalized as an ordinary part of social negotiation and and probably will become internalized as a part of class ratification if it hasn't already. I mean, this is uh, this is this thing is shaping um, the way that we think about who we are and who's like us in a way that will have long-term dramatic impact on our on our on our social um, social li- our lives as social beings. Yep. But here's the deal. I part of the, one of the more frustrating things for me about it has been that I I <clears throat> there is so much news now about the Delta vi- variant and hospitals, you know, be, being crowded and these kinds of things. And it, it's really like I don't know about you, Ed, but I I have been just finding it difficult to navigate um, what's true and what isn't true, what's what's told accurately, what isn't told accurately, and. 
Um, and that, I think, adds to both uh, – I, I think that contributes to the way in which um, the temporary measures can become permanent because there's just a lot of – I think really for a lot of people, it's hard to know what's up and what's down with, with regard to things and what can be trusted and what can't be trusted, especially because we're living in a period of just sort of increasing dis- institutional disaffiliation and distrust, which means that many more people um, say that they are unlikely – even before the pandemic, we're unlikely to trust sort of government information than before or to trust information from the media than ever before. And so now in in the situation of a, a public health crisis when those um, places are by and large sort of the disseminators of information, uh, you know, there is – there of course, there's sort of um, – all kinds of emergent alternative media that, um, you know, that some of which is actively sort of disinformation of its own. But then there is even just, I think, among people who are not sort of getting into, you know, staying up till three in the morning watching YouTube videos about the pandemic, there's just sort of uh, altogether distrust or indifference or apathy to what's being said by the government or by large media apparatus because of a sort of latent um, but but real distrust. And that makes it difficult, too, I mean, to sort of know what's real. Well, there's that. Um, but also it's just a fact of individual and crowd psychology that you can't live in a state of heightened concern right. or anxiety yeah. indefinitely. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's unsustainable at a, at a human level. So, you know, everyone can live in a state of sort of advanced anxiety and... Um, and reaction to to the pandemic for you know a year, and broadly speaking, mm-hmm. there was a lot of buy in in most places in most countries um, for sort of you know a, a round of lockdowns, some of which that went on for months and and things like that, and people could could do that, but you know you you can't just keep repeating that cycle and expect people to maintain the same level of perpetual either concern, anxiety. Right fear for their lives, whatever, however you want to phrase it. I mean, it's just, it's not sustainable at a, at a human level. And part of the problem um, that is exacerbated by that is exactly what you're talking about. Because then the problem is, you know, you say it's hard to keep track of everything, but that's because um, you, you then have people who want you to pay attention to one aspect or another of the situation when you're already having trouble continuing to focus on it, because frankly, you're exhausted by it and you can't yeah. carry on it. Then they have to do more to get your attention in right. one direction or another and the whole thing just you know unravels from there so again i'm i'm not proposing to have all the answers i have my own answer which is don't go out don't see people <laughs> that's your answer to everything i did look up though because i really wanted to understand okay how what's what's really happening so i i kind of like looked up the um i looked up the the leading causes of death in 2019 and then i um divided them over 365 to see sort of what how many people died from them in the course of a year and then i compared that to where we are sort of the 7 day death averages in the united states from from the pandemic that's attributed to the pandemic in the united states right now and 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 because you hear deaths are on the rise deaths are on the rise and it's hard to understand like okay but what is that as a percentage of Americans? Does that, you know, with a, with a high percentage of Americans being vaccinated and a low percentage of people getting sick being sort of breakthrough cases, sort of what, what does it mean that deaths are on the rise relative to other things that cause death? And it does seem to me that even, you know, if you just look at the raw data of kind of rising seven-day averages of of uh, of, of deaths attributable to, uh, attributable to, to coronavirus, I mean, if, if that's on the rise... Um, but you look over the past several weeks, um, the, those seven-day averages would still put the pandemic in the, in, the, in the top, I'd say, just kind of six or seven you know, kind of causes of death in America, even at this 
average. And again, the kind of concern of people is that it's moving upwards, right? I mean, that's the sort of thing that, that doesn't sort of remain stable at that level, but moves upwards and, um, and therefore, you know, could, could become, again, sort of out of control. And, uh, and so it, it's not as if there's not a problem. I mean, something which is sort of on the rise, if it is, and which seems to be, and uh, at the moment in the sort of top six, let's say, or top seven, it's not, it's not, oh, gone, right? I mean, that's not, that's not gone. Um, and so the notion that it's over, I think, is not a, a reasonable notion at the same time, kind of, it, will that just be the ongoing, will the coronavirus be for a period of time, just something that is in the sort of top, you know, six or seven causes of death in America? And, and what will it mean to sort of um, live with that and to sort of internalize that? And how will that change things? I mean, you don't, if you think about sort of, uh, okay, so uh, also among the the, the leading causes of death kind of in that area, are like Alzheimer's, uh, strokes, diabetes, th- those are things for which there is an ongoing awareness of the risks of them and those kinds of things, but do not provoke the kind of um, broad social panic, and in part because they're not communicable diseases in the same way. But um, but what does it mean if a communicable disease kind of sits right there over a protracted period of time? And how do we live with that? That seems to me what 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 sort of needs to be worked out right now. And um, and and you know, there's a lot of d- dissension about that, obviously. Uh, yeah, there's going to continue to be. Yeah. So suffice it to say. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> and the way that that impacts us, other than. Um, other than wanting to, uh, to 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 bring that up for the sake of uh, the for the sake of uh, you know the fact that I'm kind of feeling frustrated about it and all of those things, um, th- this is a thing which is coming to bear in in the church uh, to to a high degree as well because um, amid the sort of perdurance of the pandemic is a lot is obviously a lot of disagreement about vaccines and a lot of misinformation about vaccines and a lot of imperceptions about vaccines and part of those are sociocultural and part of those, you know, but sort of fitting into that or overlapping with that is a narrative that has existed in the church for for now quite some time about the way in which um, the vaccines are, the vaccines that have been developed were tested with uh, fetal cell lines from children who were aborted in the, I guess, 1970s and 1980s and how that impacts the morality of the thing. And while the church has been talking about that for decades now about the, about both the moral acceptability of receiving vaccines and also the imperative to kind of call for more, you know, vaccines developed without sort of this, um, this element of moral compromise. Um, All of that has obviously reached ahead in the past few months. And so now as places begin to have vaccine mandates for employees or for students or um, et cetera, et cetera, uh, the church is facing this thing about where it will sort of land on conscious exemptions, religious exemptions and vaccine mandates. And that's getting very messy in the context of the church as well. It's getting very messy indeed, and not a little bit incoherent. Not a little bit incoherent. That's right. Because, um, I mean, this all, I guess the the most recent round of all this kicked off when Cardinal Dolan issued a, a notice to his priests in the Archdiocese of New York, basically saying, you are not to sign letters affirming a religious objection or a religious exemption right. uh, from a vaccine mandate for any Catholics in the Archdiocese, which led to the National Catholic Bioethics Center issuing its own advice saying basically look the vatican has said there are reasons in conscience why a catholic might choose not to receive one of these vaccines the vatican has also said um that people should by and large 
receive vaccines. Yeah, that is that a that service is, to the common good. Yeah, and, you know, and that is perfectly morally acceptable and in line with the Catholic faith to receive these vaccines. And even got into the, I'd argue, debatably useful at this point, nitty gritty of preferences between the vaccines and and all that sort of stuff. I think that wasn't useful. I mean, I really don't think any of that was useful because it it, it exacerbated for people the idea that they that the, there was close moral cooperation between taking the vaccine. And um, and abortion, which the Holy See was trying to say, there's not close moral co- cooperation or culpably moral co- cooperation between this and abortion. And I think all of that kind of this vaccine or that vaccine exacerbated the, the sense or the argument from some that this is a moral issue, that, that that's a, 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 a now overwhelming moral issue relative yes. to the taking of the vaccine. But anyway, and but, you know, while, while affirming the preference should be for people to be vaccinated and everyone in the Vatican got vaccinated, you know, all, all of this, um, they said, nevertheless, there are. It is a legitimate exercise of personal moral autonomy and conscience to say you don't even want that remote, distant cooperation with mm-hmm. the original single abortion in the 1970s, which generations and generations and generations of research later fed into the development of some of these vaccines. So if the Vatican's left this open as a legitimate exercise of moral autonomy and personal conscience, albeit with heavy guidance on Right, your obligation yeah, you, to the common good to, to make yourself, that choice. But, right, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a question yeah. of well, you can just say no and carry on with your life. Absolutely not. There are there are responsibilities incumbent on you if that is if that's the direction your conscience takes you. It's fine. So what the NCBC said is basically, look, if you do have conscience objections to taking a vaccine, which the Vatican has said you can have, um, your objections and conscience are fundamentally religious. Yeah, that's that's where you derive your. Right. value system from so you can't anyway and then following on from that the bishops of colorado published a and temp- you have a, a moral obligation to observe your formed con- you know to, to follow your formed conscience and to the extent that the church doesn't in- bind your conscience which the church right. has not bound right the consciences right. of catholics in this matter right. now um then the bishops of colorado issued a template letter basically of the type that cardinal dolan told his priests you're not allowed to sign right um round and round we go um and i think other bishops have now too i think the bishops of South Dakota have issued a similar kind of uh, uh, a, a similar kind of thing, uh, sort of supporting religious exemptions, and I think other bishops have begun to do so too. So, yeah, round and round we go, and um, and the criticism is that those who are supporting the notion of conscious and religious exemptions are not sort of sufficiently arguing that the church has been clear that uh, there's not a prevailing sort of moral obligation not to receive the vaccine, and that it's a service of the common good to receive the vaccine. Um, the criticism of those who are saying that predominantly is that they're not sort of recognizing that it's an individual discernment in conscience and that a person does have a right to make a discernment in conscience, especially when the church hasn't said X or Y is binding in conscience or prohibited in conscience. You know, then one can have a, there are the possibility for uh, a plurality of sort of d- derived opinions um, for, for, for a variety of reasons. And, you know, the church had also held out this idea of um, the possibility of persons who don't receive vaccines that are tested in this way for, for heroic witness, although she has said rather clearly on this vaccine, but it would seem that that would have to be weighed against one's obligation to the common good and the importance of receiving the vaccine for the common good, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, 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 it, it is um, becoming a back and forth, back and forth thing in which lines have been drawn rather deliberately. And um, I suspect more bishops are going to jump on, uh, on those lines in both cases. Yes. And this, I, I don't know. I find the whole thing very, unedifying and problematic um it is i genuinely don't know what i certainly don't know what the correct quote-unquote response to all of this is for the bishops to take and i don't even know what my preferred 
response is? Because it hadn't occurred to me that Catholics would be going to their parish priests, for example, and saying, can you sign this letter saying I have a religious exemption to a vaccine mandate or whatever. Um, but clearly some are so doing. And, uh, you know, I, 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 it's not that I can see both sides of the argument on this. It's that I just, I, any logical train of thought I try to follow ends up being a circle. So, okay, the you have freedom of conscience, but you don't necessarily have a right to the church validating your exercise of the freedom of conscience in one particular way, so why should you get a letter? But on the other hand, if you have legitimate freedom of conscience within the church to make a decision, then the church doesn't have the right to basically un, you know, say your exercise of freedom of conscience falls outside of your Catholic identity because you haven't exercised it in the preferred way of one or other church leader or local bishop. Um, on the other hand, you know, should you know, I, I don't know. I just, you know, it doesn't, there, there's no, this, it's extremely messy, which, it, which is a problem. And the problem here is that people fundamentally want to be told what to do. And do they, or do they want, or, or I wonder if people fundamentally want to be told what to do, or if people fundamentally want bishops to say that one ought to do the thing that they already think they ought to do. Well, that's what I mean, really. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that there are a whole, there's a whole cadre of even practicing Catholics saying, please tell us what to do, so much as I think that ma- most people have made up their minds and then are saying, please affirm that mine is the thing. Or please don't say something that's contrary to mine because I'm worried that other people will believe it or something like that. But it does seem that most people are looking for an affirmation. And that's why I think actually this is a mess, in part, because I think there is a grave... Um, I think there are I think there are bishops who are wanting to say there's no possible religious exemption. Um, without but there is a, sort of, there is a possible religious exemption. Is, you know, I, mean, yeah, that, I think there are bishops who are sort of. I'm right, not saying that as an endorsement no, right. or a counter yeah, argument. Right. I'm just saying it is fact that, that, that the, 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 the CDF, has, the said CDF has said there is. So I mean, I, so I think the way in which we're getting the messages from any number of directions is, um, in a certain way, framed by what group of people one doesn't want to take off. You know what I mean? And um and and that's a problem, but I don't think I, I, I don't think it's I, I don't think it's not um I, I don't think it's an irrelevant fact either that, you know, that no matter what one says on this subject, and we sort of learned that when bishops were first talking about vaccines, one is going to sort of tick off a group of people who already have a predetermined set of ideas and and uh, and want that to be affirmed by their bishop. And so um I do find myself at least wondering, okay, how much of the way the bishops are framing this is framed around of not wanting to take off one group or another. And then how much of it is framed around the idea that there's a sort of expectation, maybe even a self, self-imposed self expectation that's not real from bishops that's sort of like, well, we have to tell you what the answer is. And, um, uh, or we have to give you something in a simple way so that you can have it in a simple way. When people are largely, um, uh, people are obviously capable of their own moral judgments. That's a sort of baseline presumption of the church and it's not a sin i don't think to say this is you know these are the factors um the church has said uh yes it is a discernment you must make you don't have to do anything you can't be uh uh, you shouldn't be forced to do anything um yes there is this there is uh this kind of formal cooperation and abortions that took place decades ago but um it does not does not rise to the level of uh, cooperation that is for which one is morally culpable. Um, yes, there is a there is a consideration of the common good, um, and uh, and that consideration has to be weighed given sort of the circumstance uh, against the individual consideration of the sort of effect of heroic witness with regard to abortion. And I, I think you can lay all those things out in a way that equips people to make decisions. And um, and 
Uh, and I know that I, sort of how I view that weighing exercise. But at the end of the day, I think that's what the church has to do is just lay that stuff out in a way that equips people to make decisions. And I, I would agree with that. We but have I think, a kind of moral responsibility to make those decisions. Well, we have to make those decisions. That is true. Right. I, I, I think there's also the possibility that the, and it would be nice to see some thoughtful engagement uh, from from bishops on this, because it seems to me that the level at the moment is bishops are either saying, yeah, you have to get the vaccine. Go get the vaccine. You have to. And others saying effectively, no, you don't have to. And if you want me to write you a note saying you don't have to, I'll do that. What I would like to see, though, is, I mean, what what are these letters for? The purposes of these letters are basically saying um, they're not certifying the moral judgment of this person likes not to get the vaccine for religious reasons. They are certifying a religious exemption to a vaccine mandate, if I've understood this correctly. Now, here's the thing. You can correctly or at least licitly make the moral determination not to receive the vaccine, but that does not necessarily lead to a, and therefore, you should be exempt from the consequences of not conforming to this vaccine mandate by an employer or a school or whatever. And I think this is an important distinction to make, is that you're not, it's possible for the church to validate and affirm the moral autonomy of Catholics who don't want to receive the vaccine, but at the same time say, well, hang on, on a case-by-case basis, that doesn't necessarily mean you get um, you get to have your, your common good obligations waived. Because it's one thing to say, no, you deserve, you absolutely have a religious freedom right and a freedom in conscience right not to receive a vaccine that you don't want to. It does not follow from that that you therefore can not receive the vaccine, but you get to go do whatever you want as if you were vaccinated, which is a totally different thing. So, for example, I remember a few years ago when we were in a previous life on a previous podcast and for, I forget what the context was, but vaccines came up. We were discussing this and the situation in Italy at the time was what I considered to be a, and this was way pre-pandemic before, you know, any of us ever thought there was going to be such a thing as a pandemic, let alone had heard of a coronavirus or anything like that. And there was what I considered to be um, a reasonable compromise, which was children attending state schools in Italy were required to receive certain vaccinations um, because there was a resurgence in certain diseases that had basically not been common amongst children for a very, very, very long time because of vaccination rates. But I forget why. I think it might have been um, concentrated uh, waves of immigration possibly was reintroducing or, or whatever the reason was. But there was a there was a dip in the sort of her, general herd immunity. And so there was this thing of, you know, if your kid is going to come to state school, you have to have these vaccinations in, able to become, in, able, in order to be able to enroll in the school. You have a right to enroll in the school, but the right is qualified by you have to serve the common good by receiving these vaccines. You have the freedom not to receive the vaccines, or in this case, not to have your children receive the vaccines. But that means that you can't then exercise your right to send your kid to this school. And that, to me, seemed like an uncomfortable but reasonable balancing act of rights there. And I think the same is more or less true in this situation. Not blanket, but, you know, more or less adapted case by case. There are some, you know, not everything is a situation of, I want to go to this place. You know, do, do you get a, should you be able to get a religious freedom waiver to say, well, I want to go to my favorite bar, you know, without receiving a vaccine and they want, you know, proof of vaccination at the door? No, you don't have a right to go to the bar if the owner of, you know, whatever. So I, I don't know. I, I just would like to see in and amongst the sort of more systematic treatment and sort of, you know, leading of grown up thinking through that you're talking about, I would like to see some better engagement with this is not about um, 
priests or bishops signing a letter saying you must or must not or have to or do not have to receive a vaccine. This is about where does your obligation to the common good, where does the rubber meet the road on that as you exercise your moral autonomy and your decision whether or not to get a vaccine? And there are consequences to that decision. And this, and again, going back to the CDF, this is what the CDF said. No, nobody can tell you you have to stick a needle in your arm, but you can then acquire a different set of obligations to the common good, which involves, as the CDF said, staying at home, avoiding contact, especially with people who would be more susceptible to the transmission of communicable diseases, things like that. That it's, you know, this is a, it's, this is a far broader question of balanced rights and moral imperatives than just saying, do you have the right not to receive a vaccine? And I, I think that's very well said. And I think I would add one more element to it, because I think for um, church leaders and for bishops especially, the other element of it is, do we believe that not having a vaccine because of some judgment in conscience should disqualify Catholics from attending our things? Uh, um, now, that's a much more interesting question. Right. Not, I mean, and, and some things seem relatively obvious. It does not seem that you can... It does not. It has not ordinarily seemed that one can prohibit someone from attendance in the at the, at the sacraments or at the Holy Eucharist, to which they have an obligation to attend, because of um, a medical choice which the Church has affirmed is a voluntary choice. Um, at the same time, um, what about schools? Um, do, you know, is it reasonable for the Church to say, "Well, we think this should be a voluntary thing," and so? Uh, we would not com- compel you or coerce you to, uh, to to have your children who are old enough to be vaccinated be vaccinated in order to attend our schools, uh, you know, or to be an employee of our thing. This is the kind of thing that has to has to really be weighed, and that might set a pattern for it. And therefore, what do we think is sort of a just response to this from Catholic employers or from people of goodwill and civic positions, et cetera, et cetera? But um, but but it really does. It really is a more interesting question. What are the criteria that we'll establish for our own things? Um, with regard to this thing, which we have said is in the interest of the common good, but at the same time said is not um, uh, 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 is a, is a matter which one must discern according to the following criteria. Yeah, and yeah. and I mean the problem is the incoherence that will develop and harden mm-hmm. among the bishops if we continue right. down the track we're on, which is you know in Colorado it's this and hard this, and if you're mm-hmm. in New York it's that and it's hard that mm-hmm. is. Everyone will begin to see it through the same thing that we were talking about earlier, this lens of, you know, well, hang on. I'm being told this is absolutely right over here, and I'm being told this is absolutely not right over there. They are mutually irreconcilable, so one of them has to be wrong, and the only common denominator I have is that they're both speaking from ostensibly the same position of authority, so therefore you can't have any faith in the authority of the position. That that's what's going to end up happening, is it's going to undermine the moral authority of the church to speak on this issue at all, because if it cannot speak coherently— then people will rightly determine that, well, if the church can't speak coherently on this, it can't speak with authority on it. And the problem is not that um, the church doesn't have something to say. And it's the problem is not that the church is speaking into something on which it should not speak into. It absolutely should speak into it, right. this. But it's exactly what you're saying about the church has to speak like an adult and it has to speak to yeah. people like adults and say there yeah. is we, we are not going to tell that person over there that they must get a vaccine. Because you you would like that to be the case, even if it's because we, the church, you know, hierarchy, would like that person to get a vaccine. That's not how this is going to work. But, we think this is a matter of choosing, and yeah. we're going to, and we might think there is a clear choice to be made and a clear preference for what choice they make. But that doesn't mean we can compel them, and that is a problem because, you know, in the same way that if you give in to the idea of 
you know, sort of the more fringe sweeping calls for, you know, compulsory vaccination. The same is true in the church, that if you exercise authority unjustly and coercively, it sets a precedent. And if Mm -hmm. you if you say if you open the door to the idea of, well, the church is going to compel the conscience on this, even though it itself announces it to be an area of legitimate autonomy of conscience, then that's a problem because then they're going to want people are going to want on both sides of the church to compel the conscience on other areas. Right. And then you never get out of this box. One thing that I would say about that is that you have said now on this show, but you've also said in other conversations with me that you, you that you perceive that um, uh, compulsory vaccination is a line, you know, so the, the support of sort of gov- compulsory government vaccination or compulsory employer vaccination for that matter is a line like a, a line which ought not be crossed, a, a Rubicon, if you will. And um, and I just don't think that's true for most people. Um, you know, in it the may same not way be true for the most pandemic, people, but they're yeah, wrong. In the same way that you thought the pandemic was never going away. I don't. I think if you, I, I think that if you polled most people and said, you know, the risk of pandemic would be lower if the government compelled every single person by law to get a vaccine, do you have a problem with that? I think. I, I think the majority of of people would would support that. And yeah, the majority um, of people would support the idea of legal abortion <laughs> in some circumstances. I don't care. They're wrong. But well, okay, that's one way to do it. But um, but uh, it might be more interesting um, when you can, to, when you give the government the power to compel quote unquote medical procedures. That's a big umbrella you're opening. So the concern there, and I think most people are sort of wary of slippery slope arguments, but the concern there from your perspective is um, if it's you not say slip- there ought to be – it, com- Sorry, Carrie. If you say there ought to be a compulsory uh, vaccine, um, you know, the government ought to compel people by law to, to receive the vaccine or something like that, that you have given the government a power which could be abused in other ways. I mean, is essentially what you're saying. Yeah, it's not a slippery slope argument. It's binary. Either the government has the power to compel you to receive what it deems to be necessary medical treatment or does not have the power. It's not a it's not a question of slippery slope or thin end of the wedge. It's just a binary legal question. Either the government has this power or it does not. And I would argue it does not, cannot, must not have that power. Yeah, I, I think there are some people who simply wouldn't. And you would say, well, inevitably it will be abused. And I think I'm inclined to agree with you about that. Well, but in this um, but case, I, we can agree it would be an abuse. If we're, if we're taking as read that there's legitimate freedom and moral autonomy in the making of this decision. In the, in the making of this decision. So the, the government having right? the power to override your moral mm-hmm. autonomy, that is, in fact, an abuse. Whether, I we, think that's, whether we would view it to be a, an abuse that would contribute to the common good or one that might make life easier for everyone or might even save lives, it would still be an abuse. When you compel the conscience of a person, that is an abuse. Here, here's what the CDF says about that. This is from the document in in December. Practical reason makes evident that vaccination is not, as a rule, a moral obligation, and that, therefore, it must be voluntary. In any case, from the ethical point of view, the morality of vaccines depends not only on the duty to protect one's own health, but also the duty to pursue the common good. And then they go on to talk about the common good. But the the, the CDF sort of puts it out as as just um, an a priori truth that vaccination uh, is not a moral obligation, therefore must be voluntary. And and your point is, and therefore that needs to be respected by the policy uh, positions of Catholics. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm all for nudge theory. I'm all for, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, soft. What about tax breaks for the vaccinated? How do you feel about this? Uh, I I mean, in general, I'm against the abuse and overcomplication of the tax code. Um, in this particular, if you're looking for, I, 
I don't know. I guess I'd have to hear it argued out because if you can make a compelling case why someone deserves a tax break other than just as an incentive, if it's just like, you right. know, and this, I, like I hate this crap of, you but know. When you say other than just as an incentive, I, I think it's perfectly fine to use the tax code to incentivize po- the behavior, which is judged to be positive behavior. Yeah, but I don't know. I view taxation to be fundamentally. No, but taxation is fundamentally a coercive thing. So it's basically it's it, to tax is to punish, I, I would argue. So hmm. you're at that I would point, not agree with that at all. Well, okay. Not all modes of coercion are punishment. No, but for example, there's a difference between saying, which they do in some places, get the vaccine, I'll give you $100, or if you don't get the vaccine, I'll take $100 from you. That's well, that's uh, different. Oh, that's a uh, fundamentally okay. I, different I, I argument. I kind of agree with that. But what we say with taxes, for example, is um, if you're married and have kids in our – if you're married and have kids, we'll give you a discount because we think there's a social advantage to that kind of – I mean, effectively, the tax code says that, right? The, 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 the federal income tax code says to me, you're married and have kids, we're going to give you a discount. And, um, uh, and the, that, you know, I, that, the, that discount is my, uh, having dependents and file, you know, all these things. And then pay mortgage insurance is a discount because the federal government wants to encourage home ownership. There are any number of ways in, in which the federal government sort of tries to incentivize behavior that it perceives to be good in the way that it taxes, in the way that it gives me discounts on my taxes. Well, that may be true. All I can say is the federal government is either doing a terrible job or nothing at all to incentivize me because I'm paying a lot in taxes and I don't appear to be getting <laughs> any breaks whatsoever. <laughs> well, you live in you live in the in the high tax part of the world. I do. Although yeah. I've only ever lived in high tax part. I mean, I, I do say this is bad as you think living on the East Coast is bad for tax purposes. Try living in the UK. When I lived in the UK, I used to pay so much in income tax that because America is one of, I think, only two countries in the world, although I can't remember where the other one is, that taxes its citizens when they live abroad. Mm-hmm. Way to go. Um, I had to file an American income tax return even though I wasn't earning any money in the United States and you know didn't, uh, you know, whatever. And basically they would calculate the difference, like the differential between what I was paying in income tax in the UK versus what I would be paying in federal income tax if I was living in the US. And the US government thought I was paying so much tax in the UK that they would write me a check for the difference. I would file my U.S. tax returns while living in Britain, contributing not a penny, and the U.S. government would send me a check every year saying, you're paying how much? That's outrageous. <laughs> Here, have something from us. I, Honest to God, I, I couldn't believe it the first time that happened to me. I must admit that uh, I, 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 I was a little bit distracted there, and the reason is because as soon as you said, try living in the U.K., I started thinking about my sort of long-standing desire to live maybe like in Tristan de Cunha or St. Helena, one of the British overseas territories in the South Atlantic. I, and I have, I have, I must admit, I've been thinking about that ever since. Uh, fair enough. Would you ever, uh, so, so the, so the, the South Atlantic British overseas territories are these like tiny islands in the South Atlantic, uh, with very, very small, uh, sheep herding settlements on them for the most part and, and, and in in a relatively uh, for the most part in a relatively sort of cold um new zealand esque um climate um and i don't know why but i've always thought they'd be cool places to live what do you think ed uh yeah i mean it it can get a little it can get a little fraught on the falklands every now and then the well, the neighbors yeah, are not at all friendly but, Can you explain to me the ecclesiastical jur- jurisdiction and circumscription of the British overseas territories? So there are a lot of British overseas territories, various islands in little parts of the world that sort of make up the, the remainder of the British Empire, if you will. How, how are they organized ecclesiastically? The, the largest of them, I suppose, is probably Bermuda. But let's take Bermuda out of the 
equation unless it's easier for you to keep it in there. But how are these things organized ecclesiastically? This is what I want to know, Ed. Uh, this is a fascinating question. I'm not 100% sure. Hang on. Uh, okay, so in some cases, I don't know what um, it might be for for some of some of the British overseas territories, but for example, the Falkland Islands, uh, mm-hmm. they 10% of the population is Catholic. I'm not necessarily probably like a family. Oh, for the Falklands, actually, the Falklands is kind of yeah, it, 230 people more or less. Like there are Catholics 10%. There. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, they are by by special erection of the Apostolic See. It is an apostolic prefecture, and it is oh, unaffiliated okay. with either. Um, any UK diocese or obviously any Argentine diocese. Okay. And and so they have a priest who is their apostolic prefect. Yep. I wonder how they decide. So this is essentially how, how to explain. I, to, to, the, to the law, Ed, let's, let's go to the code and let's talk about, um, let's talk about you, about odd ecclesiastical circumscriptions if we can. Okay. And so to do that, we need to go, uh, let's see, I'm, we need to go to book two and we need to go to uh, book two. What do you think? Uh, the section on particular churches, like the canons. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So book two canons somewhere in the early fours mm. or late threes, three seventies. Uh, go to uh, part two, section two, particular churches. Yeah, that's that's just where I am. Three seventies. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. A territorial prelature or territorial abbacy diocese so these are apostolic which vicariate. Are okay, not, you want to go to yeah, yeah your three seventies. Yeah, Remember I said early seventies, and what we want is three seventy and three seventy one. Yeah. Ba 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 boom. Baby. Nice work. Okay. So, Canon uh, law okay. students, if you're listening, the only part of the code you need to memorize is the table of contents. This is this is something. Yeah, but I I didn't use it. Uh, okay, so uh, what I'm wondering, what I'm asking at is essentially there are these islands in the South Atlantic and other parts of all around the all around the world. Really, the sun never sets on the vestiges of the British Empire, and um, and so there are these islands. You know, in that's technically parts. true. I think I'm sure it is. Yeah, I'm sure it is. So the British overseas territories constitute um, these islands that um, are are the remainders of of the British Empire, and they're in. Let's see. They're in the Indian Ocean. They're in the Pacific Ocean. They're in the Atlantic Ocean, and I would bet that they're. I guess they're in the Med, huh? Because it is uh, is um, Gibraltar. Gibraltar in an overseas territory of Britain. Ah, uh, I don't know if it's legally a British. I mean, it is. It is a crown dependency. Um, I don't know its exact status. I think it might be a British. Let's just say that. Let's just say that Gibraltar, so we can say they're in the Mediterranean. I'm pretty sure there's a Catholic uh, bishop of Gibraltar, well. though. Okay. Well. Okay. Um. All right. Uh. And uh. And what about um? What about Cyprus? Isn't there some sort of British overseas territory in Cyprus? Oh. That's very dicey. I don't know. All I know about the British presence on Cyprus is it is extremely legally complicated. Okay. I, I would not – I and not to mention, I mean, ecclesiastically, that place is very – Very, very complicated. Very okay, complicated. So let's just say that the British overseas territories are mostly a bunch of islands in the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, the Indian Ocean, and um, – with and Australia. Gibraltar well, that's technically just an island in the Pacific Ocean. Well, Australia is not a British overseas territory. No, it isn't. No. It's a <laughs> colony – 
No, it isn't. It's a you know Australian republicanism is gaining steam all the time. So you should be careful if you want. It's them to always gaining to... steam, and then they have a referendum and they vote against it. Okay. Well, listen. Uh, so what I'm you asking at is it essentially really Aussies. You do. You know you do. What I'm asking at is essentially how is the church organized in these places? Most of which are very small. Most of which have a very small number of Catholics. A very very small number of Catholics, but which nonetheless have Catholics. So, so I don't know what the overall sort of population of the British overseas territories are, but, but it would be pretty small. Um, and, uh, and, um, and the number of Catholics would be even less than that. So I'm asking it essentially, how are these things organized in the church? And, um, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, it would seem to me to be that it probably, there probably isn't a, a rule. I mean, we just talked about the Falkland Islands for various reasons, uh, is an apostolic Prefecture of a carrot. I forgot what I said now. Um, one or the other, but unaffiliated with either the hierarchies of Great Britain or um, its bolshe neighbor, uh, the Falklands bolshe neighbor. Um, and other places have, I think, bishops and their own diocese. So, for example, the United States has effectively overseas territories. Um, right. Mm-hmm. But most of the, like... No, but there, I mean, even then they're affiliated. So, like, for example, there's Guam, which has um, a, a bishop... A diocese. Who, it's an archdiocese, in fact, it's an, and the archbishop is was appointed a couple of years ago, and is used to be an auxiliary of Detroit, I think. And where do they conference? Where do they? Where, what well, they, conference? So Guam used to conference with the U.S., but now it conferences with the bishops of the Pacific region. But then there's the Turks and Caicos, I mm-hmm. think, which is the sole suffragan diocese of the archdiocese of Washington. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. And That's do right. they conference with the USCCP? I I don't. I don't know. think they do. I think I they conference. With is it Turks and Caicos or the British uh, British Virgin or American Virgin Islands Di- Diocese of Saint Thomas in the American Virgin Islands? Okay, that's what it is. Sorry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that he is a member of the USCCB. I I, um, I think he might come, but uh, I don't think he's a member of the USCCB. But he might be a member of some sort of a. Caribbean Episcopal Conference or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, but I honestly, I. So, but this is okay. what I mean: is there doesn't appear to be a hard and fast rule, right? Sort of, they're established. They're established and sort of figured out on a case by case basis. And to come back to the code, there are a number of sort of options for small areas, sort of uh, uh, small parts of the world um, that are that are for some reason not dioceses or not. Um, uh, archdioceses, and, and we can read about them in the 370s. Uh, a diocese in 369 is a portion of the people of God, which is entrusted to a bishop uh, for him to shepherd with the cooperation of the presbyterium, so that adhering to its pastor and gathered by him in the Holy Spirit through the gospel and the Eucharist, it constitutes a particular church. So a diocese is a portion of the people of God led by a bishop, which constitutes a particular church in which the one holy Catholic and apostolic church of Christ is truly present and operative. Um, but there are some things which are kind of like dioceses, but not raised to the level of diocese. A territorial prelature or a territorial abbacy is a certain portion of the people of God, which is defined territorially, and whose care due to special circumstances is entrusted to some prelate or abbot who governs it as a proper pastor, just like a diocesan bishop. So a territorial abbacy is a sort of historical, it was a fairly common historical thing, which is now not especially common. I don't think there are very many at all. But effectively, the abbot of a monastery in a place um, is, uh, for all intents and purposes, also the diocesan bishop uh, for the Catholics in, in an area of proximity to that monastery. and um, Sometimes even a nun. Some, can, they, um, can, can an abbess There were mitred just, abbesses. There were mitred abbesses, but I don't think that they can have... I think you need to be a priest uh, to, to, to have a functional equivalent to diocesan bishop. I think you need to be a priest. That's, and therefore, that's true. Um, 
Therefore, an abbot could be a territorial abbot, but I don't think an, an abbot could be a territorial abbot, although an abbot can wear um, an abbot can wear a mitre in a liturgical procession, which is ordinarily the symbol of a bishop's authority. Um, uh, but anyway, going back to that, kind of, I'm not sure if it was ever formally this, but um, like the diocese, the Archdiocese of Dubuque in Iowa, for a long period of time, its bishop like always derived from the same monastery. Its bishop was, for a long period of time, uh, a Benedict, and someone's going to know this sort of better than I do, but um, what was, a, was, was a Benedictine and um, I think always sort of derived from the same monastery. And there are a couple of places in the American West that, um, that, have, that, um, that have that characteristic. And so, um, you know, those weren't formally territorial abbacies, but they had sort of, they were dioceses that had a sort of formal association with a, uh, with a monastery, uh, of one, of one kind or another. And, uh, and so, so that's kind of, uh, kind of, kind of the same, but then there are some places where, in, in fact, the, the, the abbot of the place was indeed the, um, was indeed the, effectively the diocesan bishop for a period of time, and that still exists. But a territorial prelature just means that a priest is sort of placed in charge of a place, that a place is n- not going to have a bishop, maybe because it's very small. Um, uh, why else would you have a territorial prelature, Ed? Um, it, it could be actually for diplomatic reasons. It could be parts of the world where practice of the faith is persecuted dramatically. I and think the there are some territorial or apostolic vicariates and territorial prelatures for different countries in the Persian Gulf. I think that's right. Where you would not want to appoint a diocesan bishop for reasons of uh, the, 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 the you know the, of sensitivity with the government or the possibility of prompting. Well, and also there are certain expectations of a diocese, mm-hmm. um, yeah. an expectation of permanence, for example. That you know, once you erect a diocese formally, it's going to be there forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, history has shown that's not always the case, but right, nevertheless, but, but that it, the that's the expectation. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, parts of the country, or sorry, parts of the world where the faith is still taking shape still gaining roots is you know and so for example there are places where i wasn't um i mean generally speaking your the diocese is expected to be when erected as a diocese to be reasonably self-sufficient mm-hmm, that's that, right you know both not just in terms of finances but also in like you know it will be able to have its own seminary produce its own priests yeah, have mm-hmm. its own vocations that sort of thing so yeah. places where the faith is just taking root um don't tend to be erected as dioceses for those reasons until it hits those criteria and so you can have territorial abbacies and territorial prelatures, which, which are sort of it's sort of a permanent thing where we don't think we're going to appoint a bishop to this. Or we can have apostolic vicariates or apostolic prefectures. The difference between a territorial prelature and an apostolic prelature is that a territorial prelature is probably going to remain sort of a place that is autonomous from the governance of any other diocese and entrusted to a priest. It's got so, lines on uh, maps a, that aren't likely to change. It's a perfect example of effectively what these what what I think the British overseas territories are for the most part. A parish. Effectively, you need something that is the size and functionality of a parish, but in a place that is very, very far from anywhere else and not conveniently sort of subject to the to the jurisdiction of a diocesan bishop. This would be a territorial prelature. An apostolic prelature or an apostolic vicariate is effectively um, something which is um, on the way. Uh, pre- I've been saying prelature, but actually an apostolic prefecture, it doesn't matter. But uh, an apostolic vicariate or an apostolic prefecture is something which is on the way to becoming a diocese. And that might be a place where political circumstances make it very, very difficult to be uh, to be erected as a diocese. Well, but, like and that. in those cases, the line of authority is slightly different because the, the apostolic vicar or apostolic prefect is governing directly in the name of the Pope. 
that it right. is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's basically it's a Roman colony, if you like. Yeah, uh-huh. on yeah, paper. Right, Whereas exactly. he, and a, yeah, a territorial he, prelature or territorial abbacy, they are functioning as if they were the diocesan bishop for yeah, all intents and purposes. That's a great distinction. That's a great distinction. So rather than being the vicar of the, rather than exercising authority vicariously in the place, so that an apostolic vicariate, you, an, an apostle, uh, uh, perhaps they are a bishop or perhaps they're a priest, but um, someone is exercising the Pope's authority vicariously in a place. Um, whereas in a territorial prelature, um, uh, this care is entrusted, but it's sort of, it's not, it, 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 is, uh, it is not the vicarious authority of someone else, but one, the authority of one's own office. Yeah. Yeah. So if I move to Tristan de Cunha or um, St. Helena or something like that, probably I'll be um, under the governance of a territorial prelate or something like that, you think, huh? That is, that, that seems likely. Seems likely. Cool. They have a lot of sweaters. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, JD, would yes. you like to play a game? Sure. This, this is, um, it's not a game per se. Okay. Uh, but what it is, um, I don't know. What, would you like to play a game? Yes. Okay. This isn't a game. Uh, well, it's, uh, it's kind of a game. It, this, this is, this is, a, this is a diversion. This is the point. <laughs> this is the point where they're like, it's not a game for you. And then, you, and then a bunch of kids push you down on the playground or something like that. Uh, <laughs> Okay. I, like, I don't know what's about to happen to me, no, but I don't like it. There was, this was sent in by um, a, a dear friend and listener. A listener sent us in a game. Well, a suggestion for one. And, and, I, and I agree that this is, this, is, this is good content, and so we're going to do it. Okay. Um, and, and basically, J.D., you were born on the East Coast. I don't like being on the spot. Am I going to be on the spot here? Yeah. Um, okay. You were born on the East Coast. I was born in a small town. Well, that's not true, but okay. Yeah. You, you were born in New Jersey. I was. Um, you were educated in the Midwest. Uh, yeah, you were. I was educated in the Ohio Valley. I see. I don't know if you really want to. I don't know what to call Eastern Ohio, um, but I'm not sure Midwest is the, quite the right thing. I, I mean, sort of Eastern Ohio has a, a elements I mean, elements of Appalachia. The Midwest starts north of the north of the Ohio River and. East of the 13 colonies, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Once you're west of Pennsylvania, the Midwest has begun. I, I just think that, I just think that, I mean, so, uh, you know, you could throw a rock from my dorm to West Virginia. Is that the Midwest? Well, everyone's got borders. I mean, it's what it is. <laughs> Fort Steuben, border to the Midwest. Anyway, you... you Actually, per- you know, Fort Steuben... Oh, no, anyway. You, you okay. You, you were born in New Jersey. You were educated in Ohio, and you now live in Colorado. I do. I think it'd be There's fair to say that you have spent time about me. A- across the, the width of this nation. Oh, I've been everywhere, man. That's a great song. Um, yeah. I, I think it would be fair to call you... Uh, if not represent a renaissance man if you will no i was if i going to go the other way and say you would you say you were a typical american a typical american a typical american can you typify america i think you can having having lived everywhere and you know i, I don't know why i'm being a man of the people. people let's get to it oh, well, let's get to it yeah well okay so a survey was taken by yougov um recently okay. which was sent in by by yougov an, is a sort of polling yes they're thing. they're a polling company but it's not, I don't think they do polling in a formal and scientific way. I think it's more like they have a bunch of online surveys. Is that right? No, they, they, they do the other thing, too. They you do cover, the okay. You cover a very serious polling outfit. Okay, okay. Well, sorry about that, guys. Um, in, in addition to – but they also do some online – they also do online survey sampling and things like that. They're a big company. They do a lot of different oh. stuff. Anyway, there was one survey uh, that has been floating around recently, and it involved what your average American, um, how they felt they would stack up 
in a in oh a, the fighting the animals thing. yeah i've um, seen this i have seen this and i i looked at this and um i was you surprised thought of me. i no i looked at this and i was surprised by some of the results mm-hmm. and what people you know how people fancy their chances against different things and 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 i wondered um you know where where you would land on a few of these how you felt you would stack up against uh mother nature so we're going to have sort of zoological death match if you like um okay. you know sort of uh you know would i beat this animal or that animal yeah, so the idea was action. these people were polled with a question would you beat a certain kind of animal in a fight essentially an unarmed fight an unarmed fight and, yes. and part of i think the news hook about this was that Americans were more likely to say that they would beat various kinds of animals in a fight than than uh, than than Britons were. They were, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, they they very much were, which I thought was very interesting. Um, what does beat mean? I mean, does the thing have to? When for you're the purposes of this, things, this is an I, all or nothing thing, JD. So you either you live or die. No, two, oh really? Two two heartbeats are walking into this ring, and only one is walking out. I this mean, is, I I don't like the idea of killing an animal just for you know. Just for uh, to, you know, to this prove isn't for my... sport, JD. You're doing this to. You're doing <laughs> this. Like we're walking into a ring, Ed. We're walking into a ring. Of yeah, but you're not ring. choosing it. This is um, <laughs> what. You, th- this is just you know. I'm sorry. You someone someone's not walking out. It, it's either going to be you or it's going to be the animal. The most uh, sort of the weirdest version of the most dangerous game. Okay. Okay. And you want to so give me these animals and see if I think I could win this. All right. Now do, you don't have this in front of you. I hope. I don't have this in front of me. If you don't, if you do, you're on your own or not. Because part of this is I want to see where you think you stack up relative to the average American and relative well, to the average English. But it's a question. Do I think I could beat the thing or do I not think I could beat the thing? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. So we'll start at the bottom. Uh, a rat, JD. Do you think you could take you, a rat? So the question is, do I think I could beat a rat in a fight? Yes. An unarmed fight. You versus rat. Man versus rat. JD okay, versus great. rat. Now I have some questions. Are we in a... Are Is this ring... Now in I which we find ourselves. Okay, yeah, I grant you that terroir is sort of a thing in some of these it's matchups. It's a serious issue, yeah. But if we're, we're going to have a leveler, so we're just going to say you are in that. That this is a a a defined a wrestling ring with walls around it. Yes, but no mesh ceiling. around it for no ceiling. Yeah. Okay, but neither of us can escape or hide. No, and no there's no hiding. You are you got a. Oh yeah, I could beat a rat. You could be a rat. Okay. Do I have shoes on? Yes, you're fully clothed. Okay, yeah, I could beat a rat then. I don't want to kick a rat with bare feet, but if I have shoes on, I could beat him. Uh, okay, good. And and most people do. What I thought was interesting in this survey was that, you know, most people thought they could beat a rat. The 72% of Americans thought they could beat a rat. Only um, 67% of British respondents thought they could beat a rat, which I don't know why they were feeling timid about that. Uh, I think you know, you, You're people with less self-confidence on the whole. Uh, I don't know. Well, let's find out. Okay, so all right, house cat, JD. Can you take a house cat? Uh, I've, do I have long sleeves on? Uh, if you want them, yes, I'll give you long sleeves. Okay. What about? Could I have a kind of a fencing helmet? Like a you know the you know a fencing helmet where no, it has you a don't mesh get a, no, you don't get a helmet. I don't get a helmet. You're in you're in the clothes you're currently in. Well, I don't have long sleeves on. Well, then you don't get long sleeves. Well, no, let me get a sweater. JD, can you, it's not a complicated question. Do you think you could beat a house cat in a fight? Yes. Okay. Well, most people did. Now, this is this is the important one. And and this is where we saw serious divergence between US and UK respondents and and I think this shows a level of cultural ignorance on on one side of the divide. So we'll see where you fall. JD, could you beat a goose? Yes. You see, you said without hesitation, you ummed and odd over house cat. I could obviously beat a goose in a I fight. I don't think that's true. 
I could obviously be the goose. I you know, can... I raised. You know, I raised ducks. You know that I for a little while I raised ducks. Those are my... not like for like. You no, do, have you ever fought a goose? Mass... Have you ever seen a goose attack a human being? You're thinking about swans. Swans can be very no, vicious. Swans, but... I, thank you. I know the difference between geese and swans. Do you? But have you ever seen a goose? You know, get stuck into a person. I have. I have seen like a. I have seen like a funny little video of like a three year old running away from a goose. But I'm a grown man. No, but and I have long you, no, and I have long sleeves on for God's sake. Well, uh, yes. Uh, okay, I, I I think probably in did the final, most Americans think that they could beat a goose? Yeah, sixty one percent thought they could beat a goose, but um, the UK no. Most people thought the goose would win. They only forty five percent said that they. That's why. That's why the remnants of your empire are the British overseas no, territory. No, it's because, because the island is confidence. littered with geese, and we frequently see them in the parks messing people up, and we know to keep our distance. But you do. Why are they doing that? Why? Because when they've why got goslings, like if you, you go near the pond, like they will come at you. Like they're, they're, this is something that you frequently see. Like oh, I'm going to run out to the store. I'm going to run out to the store and get a tenner. No, a no I mean there the aren't packs of marauding get some geese patrolling some crisps. the streets. Oh, crikey! Look at the see those you geese. Know, no, Holy but I, it, is, it is not an mm. unexpected. Where's Boris Johnson not, when you need him? Those geese are everywhere. It, it's not an unknown news item. This is why I vote for Brexit. On a recurring annual basis, that someone will be attacked by geese. You I, like, and again, okay. in the, in the final reckoning, I suspect you're probably right. You would win if it was truly life or death. But I think if it was just a casual scuffle, I think you might come off the worse from from the goose. I, a bullet couldn't stop me. Okay, um, a, a medium sized dog, JD. I don't want to fight a dog. I don't care if you want to. Why can't you ever just accept the premise of the game? Are we going to do all the animals and the thing? No, I'm going to jump over and I'm okay. just going to I don't want to fight a dog. You, uh, well, you, okay. That's that's silly. It, but what, is it a golden retriever? I'm going to fight a golden retriever? I don't know. I've seen old yellow. No, you know I'm not what, going to Anything fight can happen. I'm not going to fight a golden retriever. I'm not going to. All right. Golden this retriever is, wins. You know what it is? You know that? You know in, at Christmas when the... British when the British and the Germans came out of their trenches and sang Silent Night together on Christmas Eve. Yeah. World War One. Yeah. The dog that's me and the dog. Okay. Chimpanzee, JD. No. You don't think you can beat him? I definitely can't beat a chimpanzee in a fight, I don't think. Well really? I think chimps are I think chimps are a lot stronger than humans. Like I think they are a lot stronger than humans. This is not a gorilla. This is a chimpanzee. Yeah, I think I think that chimpanzees. I think that chimpanzees are stronger than people by a lot. I mean, and you I'm, don't feel that you would have uh, an intellectual advantage that you know you could. But what? But what? But yes, yes, I would. Um, but um, what? What am I going to use that for? I mean, am I going to rope a dope the chimp until he's tired? Well, actually, now let's just say that. Yeah, I could beat him. <laughs> I, not I'm going to rope it up that chimp. I'm going to rope it up that chimp. At, you they're, have they're to. significantly stronger I, than people, but I I could beat him. Monkeys creep me out. No, I don't have a problem with them. I no, I, I, I mean, I'm not saying a, I want a pet monkey, but I don't. It's a have Darwinian a imperative uh, that you know <laughs> you're supposed to kick the evolutionary ladder out from underneath you as you climb. Yeah, and fair I just enough. they're they're. I'm telling you, you sleep on the chimps, they're coming for us. I've it, seen Planet right. of the Apes. I, I know what they're up to. I, I'm not even sure that I. I think I know what kind of monkey a chimpanzee is. I think. It, it, I think. Um, it's not the. It's not the. Um, it's not the kind of monkey from The Lion King, and it's not the kind of monkey from Friends. It's a sort of middle a middle monkey of that. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think I'd have to really – my only strategy is to really tire him out. And I think I think I could do that. Especially, could I have a – can I have a bag of shiny things? No. no. Okay. Anyway, yeah, I could get him. Okay. What about a kangaroo? Because this is where the numbers really start dropping off. Americans were even Americans were a little timid about the chimpanzee. Um, 
but the numbers really start dropping off a kangaroo. Do you think you could weird, beat a kangaroo? That's weird because kangaroo is not as difficult to beat as chimpanzee. Ch- chimpanzee is a serious fight. I could obviously beat kangaroo if I could beat chimpanzee. Have you ever seen kangaroos fighting people? Uh, you have you have sent me a lot of YouTube of that, and yes, I've it's seen because it's like, delightful. Yeah, uh, yes. I, I, again, I don't like doing this. Like, I I don't like <laughs> I don't like this kind of fighting, man. But you know, I gotta. I guess I gotta. Whatever the premise is here, I gotta put food on the table or whatever. Um, but uh, chimpanzee. If this was a video game and you were kind of going up, it was like a was like punch out Mike Tyson's punch out. But you're fighting animals. Chimpanzee would come before would come after um, kangaroo. But kangaroos are bigger. Yeah, but that... And stronger. Yeah, I don't know. That's what I don't... Plus, they're not as... They're not as... um, uh, They don't have the kind of, uh, uh, like, flexibility and limb control and things like that. I know you're thinking the feet, but I have a strategy already where I'm going to get... All you have to do is get behind the kangaroo. Two, two options, right? One, to get behind the kangaroo, step on his tail, and then punch him about the head. Or two, and this is where they really don't like it, but if you can do it, you're going to win. Get in the pouch. If you can get in the pouch, that kangaroo is done. I mean, for a lot of reasons. One of which is that you sort of trigger a maternal instinct and the kangaroo thinks that you're its baby and it stops fighting and then you just uppercut, pop. That may work. I mean, I'm the, pleased the, that you're t- bullish on your chances with the kangaroo because, again, this is – most people did not. They 14% U.S. and 5% U.K. thought they could – um, beat a kangaroo. I'd be interested to know the Australian numbers on this because again, do you think as, you could beat a kangaroo? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I do. But I mean, I again, be, I, I have uh, watched also a lot of a, te- a lot of Australian YouTube, so I, I know. I feel like I have you know the pouch strategy. I I feel like I know the moves the kangaroo is going to come with, mm-hmm. and I yeah. think as long as you're no more than eight beers in, you, you should be able to handle yourself. That again. seems to be the over under on on my on my video review of this. Okay. Okay. Um, and we'll just do one more. I mean, I'm I'm going to skip a lot of this. I mean, I don't know who the eight percent of Americans are that think they could beat an elephant in a fight, but my guess is, you know, I've they- seen an elephant. Like I've um, seen an elephant in the wild. They're bigger than They're they large. are at the zoo. They're very, very, very large. I mean, I don't even know what it is to say that you're fighting an elephant, right? I mean, like, what is that? I honestly, if there are uh, the eight percent of people who think they'd win in a fight with an elephant, I I'd, I'd say, you know, good luck to them. That's just Darwinism in action. I, but again, I don't want to fight an elephant. I, I, got I don't no, either. I have, I got because no, the elephant would win. I, I got no. I got no problem with the. Okay. Now and and finally, Judy. But this is this is the sort of you know big boss of of the latter uh, by common consensus is grizzly bear. Could I beat a grizzly bear in a fight? Yeah. For God's sake, no. Of course not. It's a... All right. Well, what percentage of Americans do you think said they could beat a grizzly bear in a? <laughs> bare knuckle fight lots of here's what i would guess uh lots of um dudes in their 20s who live in washington dc and have an entry-level position at a at a sort of lobbying organization or government agency um lots of uh so that's that demographic um a fair number of uh, uh journalists with outside impressions of their own effectiveness of various things um Maybe a couple of uh, like grizzly bear trainers who know where the pressure points are and things like that. I mean, obviously, if you're a grizzly bear trainer, then you could probably beat a grizzly bear because you know a lot of it is probably psychological. And if you know how to get in the grizzly bear's head, I think that changes things dramatically. Um, or if you can figure out a way to get it to be, uh, you to can pump. get in its head pretty easily. It's through its mouth. I think that's what it's aiming for. <laughs> I would say I don't know, maybe. 
10% of Americans think they could beat a grizzly bear? To my shock, you've overestimated. It's only 6%, but I still consider that to be a wildly ambitious number. (laughs) What percent of of English people? Uh, 2%. Yeah, and you guys don't even have bears, right? I mean, there are no bears in England. Uh, No. No, there's the you. Your chances of coming across a bear in the wild in England are, I, I believe, strong zero. Although this poll was, I think, UK wide. So, that well, are include, there bears in Scotland? If they were going to be anywhere, I mean, I've met some Scotsmen that you know, <laughs> in the wrong light. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> well, what they I can like be a, a fierce people. What I uh, oh, you know what? Is it possible that there are polar bears in Scotland? No, no, no. There are no polar bears in Scotland. Okay, I mean, Scotland crosses the Arctic Circle. Um, some of the very outer islands might, but I'm not aware of that. Oh, okay. I thought Scotland. It gets, I okay. mean, the outer, the outer Scottish islands get pretty snugly with the Scandi countries, but I don't think it's Arctic Circle territory. Okay. All right. I thought that some of the Heb- Hebrides. Hebrides. Hebrides maybe were north of the Arctic Circle. Maybe they are. I'm not aware of it. Well, this is what I like about August is that... Um, we have time to do this because August is again, for those of you who are waiting for more news stuff from us, just a reminder that August is again sort of the great news slowdown of the church, which gives us the opportunity to talk about the bear fighting. And uh, Ed, I've been glad to do that with you, and I'm looking forward to uh, whatever next week may bring. Uh, me too. All right. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host, JD Flynn, and I'm joined by Ed the Grizzly Condon. Or, no, actually, no, that's not right at all. I think that's not the nickname for you at all, because you want the most intimidating animal on that list. I'm joined, my friends, by Ed Gooseman Condon. We'll see you next week. 